Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. All right. Hey, Joey. Good morning. Morning or afternoon or evening, wherever you are right now listening to this. Good yes. day, sir. Yes. Good day. And madam. Ma'am. Um, Hazel got some walkie-talkies for her birthday. And Whoa. so I know really fun actually to like let them her and Addie try and figure them out and like talk to each other and Addie has like no idea how to push the button and to actually get it to work but she's been saying um ma'am ma'am copy copy which is funny because I don't think she has any idea what she's saying and I don't know where she's heard it from but <laughs> she's just going to her ma'am breaker breaker one nine let's jump in yeah, yeah that's right but for time um so joey why don't you give us a summary from your sermon on sunday which was yeah. um jesus judged in the narrative with jesus and Pilate and the people mm-hmm. yeah so we we're focusing in on the interaction but primarily the interaction between jesus and Pilate and Pilate and the crowd um this is jesus being judged as well innocent by Pilate, guilty by the sanhedrin um, but contempt, condemned to death anyway. Um, the the point of this week was not to, well, the, the point of this week was basically just to let's kind of soak in the story, you know, experience the story, try to, I tried to bring out a lot of the um, historical context and considerations that give depth to the story that otherwise we we wouldn't be aware of. Of course, most of Matthew's first readers were, more than aware of the political uh, ramifications of everything that's happening here, because that's their that's their experience. You know, they're living in it. So trying to bring a lot of that out and describe what was going on and what the background assumptions were, just so we can get a sense of, man, what really happened here. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, ultimately, in this whole sermon series, we're talking about walking the way of the cross, which means living, uh, living the way of Jesus. And so we, we wanted to primarily see him in this story and how he responded. And from that, you know, it's not, it's not like a find an inspiration thing, but from it say, okay, we're called to live in a similar way. So um, the, the, the interesting thing about this particular story is that Jesus is barely present. You know, he's the object of everything, never or hardly ever the subject of what's happening. It doesn't seem to have any control, any voice, any say in anything that's happening to him. And that's, of course, intentional. Matthew is very much telling the story of Jesus's last few hours with Old Testament echoes in the background. I mean, he's Matthew all the way through has kept tying Jesus's experience back to Isaiah 53, back to the suffering servant. And so we get that again here in the background, you know, subtly, uh, we realize, oh, you know, like a sheep led, you know, a lamb led to the slaughtering block or a sheep before it shares is silent. So Jesus didn't open up his mouth. And uh, that's what comes through here. Now, if we were to, you know, we're not trying to look at Matthew and then compare him to the other gospels to be like, oh, Matthew actually changed, you know, he, Matthew has a unique point of view. He's trying to make a specific point. The other gospels will give us more information. Actually, Jesus did speak here. He said this. He spoke here. He said this. That's not Matthew's point. Um, and largely what Jesus said in all those other places didn't 
he, he wasn't defending himself. He was uh, confronting the, the initial questions, basically. So mm-hmm. Matthew, I mean, he's, he's not being inaccurate or anything. He's just telling the story from a very particular point of view. And uh, we wanted to roll around in that point of view specifically and see how Jesus, you know, when everyone's shouting, Jesus is silent. Mm-hmm. And what do we see in that for ourselves? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Joey. Um, all right. So we've got a few questions to run through yes. today um, that we had submitted, which is just a great. Um, the I love first it. one. It is particular to the first service, the scripture reading. So um, our scripture reading was from um, a different version. And do you know what version it is? Because she specifically said um, Jesus Barabbas when saying Barabbas's name. And that's different. And why would a version include Jesus Barabbas? What does that mean for us Mm -hmm. when we're reading? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I'm not sure what translation she was reading from. I skimmed a couple of the, you know, popular ones and, and didn't, uh, didn't see the one that rang to, you know, rang a bell. Um, and I, I didn't text her and ask. So, uh, I don't know, but, uh, yeah, there's a really interesting, um, there's a really interesting issue going on here. And, uh, we can address it from, uh, the science of textual criticism. So textual criticism is not, you know, looking at the text and making fun of it or criticizing it or, you know, bad text. Um, it is the, the science of looking at all of the different manuscripts that we have, all the different copies of copies of copies that we have and trying to understand from those copies and copies and copies, like what did the original writing look like? We don't have any of the originals. So we're trying to reconstruct the originals from all the copies. I don't know if you've ever sat down at a computer and you've tried to type in something that you're reading off of a page. You'll notice you can make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And often those mistakes are, you know, they can be categorized like, oh, your eyes read ahead. And so you grabbed a word from farther, farther ahead, or you accidentally skipped a line or, you know, there's a similar word in this line and a similar word in a line, three lines down. And you just accidentally skipped to that one and kept going from there. People copying things by hand made all those same kind of mistakes. And so, but by comparing them with each other and understanding how mistakes could be made, we can work ourselves backwards to basically the the closest guess we have of what the original, original manuscript looked like. Now, there's lots of differences between all these different manuscripts, but the short version is it's almost not like 99% of them are spelling differences or word order differences. They're immaterial. Um, but in this particular case, there's a question. Some of our oldest manuscripts have the name the full name for Barabbas, they have Jesus Barabbas. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or in um, in Aramaic, it would have been pronounced Yeshua Barabbas, something like something along those lines. And so mm-hmm. some of the oldest manuscripts have Jesus Barabbas. And um, but pretty quickly, the the copies of copies of copies that we have just have Barabbas. So the question is, did some scribe somewhere along the way add the name Jesus before Barabbas? Or is it more likely that people removed the name Jesus from before Barabbas? And most text critical scholars would say it's more likely that people removed the name Jesus from before Bar- the name Barabbas, primarily out of emotion, uh, uh, like a, an emotional response of, oh, I don't like the idea that Barabbas has the same name as Jesus. Right. Now, the name Jesus was a common name 
Um, another historian, Josephus, records at least 12 different Jesuses uh, in history that were around the same time or a little bit late. So it's a common name. It's not at all odd to think that Barabbas's first name might have been Yeshua, which means the one who saves, right? Not so. Um, recently, uh, newer translations have been adding, adding, adding back in, or including what had been dropped so early. The name, the full uh, Barabbas's full name, Jesus Barabbas or Yeshua Bar Abbas. Um, some manuscript or some translations. I'm not sure the ESV doesn't look like the ESV does it. Will put Barabbas, but then just footnote it with the earliest manuscripts include Jesus Barabbas. Mm -hmm. So there was actually a huge, when the uh, NEB uh, translation came out, which was, I think, in the 70s, maybe the 60s, um, when it came out, it was the first English translation to print Jesus Barabbas. There was this huge, like, whoa, that's, I don't like that, right? I don't like the idea that Barabbas, the murderer insurrectionist, has the same name as Jesus. So most English translations don't include it just because there's like an emotional outcry, mm -hmm. which lends credence to the idea that, yeah, this name was dropped early on in the Christian tradition because it just didn't feel right mm -hmm. uh, for Barabbas to have the first name Yeshua. So anyway, best reconstruction is Barabbas's full name is Yeshua Barabbas, and that Matthew is very specifically making a literary point. He's not, you know, tying a bow on it. He's just letting it happen in the narrative of having Pilate ask the crowd, do you want... Uh, do you want Jesus Barabbas or do you want Jesus the Messiah? Which Jesus are you looking for? Um, and there's that deeper layer of just the naming that is so um, evocative that Barabbas is, it means the son of the father or the son of the abbot or the son of a rabbi. So it, it may be that Bar uh, Barabbas was, you know, the, and I didn't go into any of this speculation because it doesn't really make the point and it's speculation, but best guess is that he's the son of a fairly well-known rabbi or teacher or um, religious leader. And he's just known as, you know, the father's son. That's, that's this guy out who's trying to start this revolutionary, but Matthew, including the whole name, it's like, do you want the son of the father, the one who saves, or do you want Jesus, the one who's the anointed one, the king, the ruler, the Messiah? And it's like, ah, uh, sounds like the same person, and yet they're mm -hmm. not, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that, that sort of literary irony that's coming through in what Matthew says. Yeah, like almost like puts them on the same playing field, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like comparing the two of them, and it's like Jesus isn't even on that same level but make yeah and you've got the what kind of salvation are you looking for you know the political revolutionary or yeah. the the messiah the suffering servant mm -hmm. yeah all right well there's a lot a lot there there's Thanks, a lot in that yep yeah <laughs> um okay so wondering if you felt like you were cut for time around verse 19 something yeah. that like maybe just didn't feel like it fit very well with the sermon because you just kind of passed over it um yep. my question for you is like it's a long narrative it was a long passage for you to walk through um and <clears throat> excuse me mm -hmm. all gospel writers include some sort of this part of the narrative between jesus and Pilate and the crowd but no other gospel writer includes something like verse 19 which is um Pilate's wife 
yeah talking to pilot about the stream that she had and so why was it important for matthew to include this first he felt like it was necessary um and it just it kind of felt like it didn't fit like with the flow of the text and so he really meant to include it it felt like it interrupted something so why why include it what does it mean for us what should we do with this verse 19 yeah it's good it's a great question so yeah um so 18 and 19 are uh, Matthew's commentary on what's happening, you know, as the author. So verse 18 is, uh, for Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the Sanhedrin had delivered Jesus up to him. And then verse 19, uh, Matthew adds, tacks onto the back of verse 18 to say, besides, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man or that innocent man. Um, it's probably a better translation, innocent man for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So there's a couple of, well, the main reason I, I kind of skipped over it is like, well, at least it, it mostly it just spoke to Pilate's motivation of why he's considering Jesus is most likely innocent of these charges. Um, but also I didn't, I could have probably included a sentence or two of just something along the lines of, you know, Pilate's motivation and all this is like and even you know his wife had warned him like I had a dream about this guy and this is I don't like this situation um there's a lot of supposition about why this is included for one thing Matthew talks a lot about dreams especially back in chapter one chapter two you know if you got the dreams Mary Joseph you know flee to Egypt you're safe to come back you know being warned in a dream, warned in a dream comes up a couple of times. Now there's no real indication here in verse 19 that this is a dream from God. It may be, it may not be, I don't know. Um, There's more supposition. Did Pilate and his wife already know what was happening with Jesus? Because when Jesus was betrayed in the garden, there were some soldiers from Pilate that were part of this group. So you know, he had to authorize these guys going along. So he already knew that something was happening and told his wife. And so then she just kind of had one of those weird, like, I don't know, that doesn't feel right sort of experiences or dreams. Um, you know, we could go into a sharing our weird dreams uh, stories, but um, so it may be something along those lines. Um, regardless, you're right. Matthew's the only one who includes this first Um it's sort of a parenthetical note inserted into the middle of the narrative that explains a little bit of Pilate's motivation, you know, knowing that it was out of envy, also knowing that his wife had said, don't touch this. I don't know what's going on here, but this is, this is not good. Um, I was focused more on Pilate's interaction with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers. So I kept my focus there and didn't really bring in uh, the thing about his wife. Uh, what are we to take away or learn from it? I, not, I wouldn't say very much other than, Um, there's a couple of layers here. One is the repetition of dreams across Matthew's whole narrative of Jesus's life. Second, there's this idea that even the, the pagan or the, the Greek, the Gentile rulers, um, are like, this guy's innocent, you know, versus the Jewish rulers, the ones to whom Jesus came are saying, no, he's guilty. Um, and third is just understanding it, understanding Pilate's own, uh, mental and psychological state at a slightly uh, with slightly more detail or slightly deeper level. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on that note of like recognizing Je- Jesus's innocence, is it really yeah. true that Pilate didn't have a choice, but to condemn Jesus? Um, Pilate knew or had a really good idea that Jesus was innocent. Was he powerless to mete out justice? 
Yeah, yeah. That's a great question and, and makes me think I didn't make it uh, as clear as I should have. So Pilate, his, he is not powerless. He can give whatever verdict he wants. You know, he can declare innocent, he can declare guilty. Um, but Jesus's silence um, legally was understood as an admission of guilt. No, it obviously wasn't an admission of guilt. Jesus wasn't saying, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a violent insurrectionist or, uh, but he is king of the Jews, right? And when Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? He says, well, that's the way you would put it. Um, but if I were to say it, I would mean something very different than what you think I mean by it. And in John, there's a, there's a back and forth where Jesus says, well, yeah, but my kingdom is not a kingdom like this world, like your kingdom or else my followers would be fighting to have me released and they're not. So it's a different kind of kingdom. I'm the different kind of king of a different kind of kingdom. So uh, Pilate could have have just said, you know what? Um, and actually, uh, other historians tell us about similar situations in which uh, the governor, basically a different governor, just said, all right, this guy's a maniac. I'm just going to beat him and let him go. Mm -hmm. um, so Pilate could have done that, just flogged him and let him go. Um, he had the he had the power to do that, even though Jesus' silence is taken in the Roman legal system as admission of guilt. Um, he could still decide, okay, yeah, but guilty of what, really? And, and what's the actual right punishment? Um, but some of the other gospels uh, tell us that even when he uh, Pilate said, look, he, he's innocent, I'm just gonna let him go. Um, the Jews responded, John records that they respond with, uh, something along the lines of, yeah, but he has put himself up against Caesar. If you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's. And Pilate is already in this, uh, um, we know from history that Pilate is already in a pretty tenuous situation. Um, he has not done a great job of keeping the peace um, in Judea. And so he is already, his the main guy who was above him, watching out for him, uh, was killed. Is no longer in his position. Pilate's on pretty shaky political ground, and an appeal to Caesar is enough to basically say, like, you you don't condemn this guy, like you're going to get recalled and you're going to lose your job. And ultimately, he does just a couple years mm -hmm. after this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, seeing that like the mob is becoming riotous, they're telling him that. Um, He's setting himself up in opposition to Caesar on this. Like he's just okay, fine. I'm out. Wash your hands of it. Like you guys take it. I don't want anything more to do with this. Mm -hmm. It's not worth the political risk to him. Okay. You know, um, I feel like this the sermon was like some brand new. It's almost all brand new information for me because I don't think I've ever heard a teaching on this specific passage before. And mm. when I have read through it, I've just maybe seen Pilate more righteous than he actually is. Like I thought that he was like, Hey, I don't think this guy, like, I don't think he's done anything wrong. I'm not going to condemn him. Like, I'm, I don't know. Like I'm not going to be responsible mm -hmm. for, you know, crucifying him or bringing punishment for him or whatever. Um, and I just thought like, oh, Pilate's kind of nice guy in this narrative, cutting Jesus <laughs> a break. Um, yeah. But you were saying like Pilate is like brutal. He was known for really oh, um, terrible acts and things like that. And I'm like, Psh, I didn't know this historical context. So it was really helpful for me. He's not a great guy. Not a great guy at all. Uh, real brutal, real just uh, real offensive, intentionally offensive. 
um, you know, the whole uh, Machiavellian question of, is it better to be loved or feared? He's like, oh yeah, feared for sure. You know, that's where he lands on that question. And yeah, he is not really on Jesus's side in any way. He just really wants to exert control over the Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrin. Right. Um, right. They're trying to use him. He doesn't want to be used. Um, he, so he's trying everything he can to not be used as just a, you know, basically as an execution squad. Um, and, and so, but then it's not worth the political risk just to win points against the Sanhedrin. So, okay, fine, whatever, you know, crucify him. Um, and, and even, you know, the scourging and crucifixion and all that stuff itself, like it's so brutal that later, uh, Roman emperors, look at it and they're like, this is disgusting. This is horrible. I can't believe we ever used to do this and outlaw it and ban it. So <clears throat> yeah, it's a, uh, he is, he is not a great guy. Um, mm. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of political layers of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I didn't know any of it. So I'm thankful that you unpacked right. that for us. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question for you. Oh, yes. Um, this person says, it's interesting how some gospel writers put small truths on the lips of Jesus's enemies. For example, John mm -hmm. eleven fifty, which it says, um, you're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Mm -hmm. Yep. The um, high priest. Yeah. Yes. And is it similar? Is that similar to what Matthew's doing here with the crowd when they say that Jesus's blood will be on them and their children. They mean mm -hmm. one thing, but does Matthew include this to show that indeed Jesus's atoning work and his blood is covering even those who put him to death or are we reading too much into it or is mm. that a stretch? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, yeah. So often um, the, the questioner is right. Often, um, people will speak more than they know. And, and I think in John 11, that's exactly what it says. Um, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the high priest, and trying to convince everyone like, hey, it's it, we need to take this guy out or we're gonna, you know, the Romans are gonna subjugate us, basically says it's better that one person die than that the whole nation suffer. And then I think it goes on to say something like Caiaphas being high priest that year prophesied, not knowing what he was saying, something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, yeah. So John very specifically points that out. So Matthew doesn't point anything out like that here in, uh, in verses, uh, 24, 25. Uh, but there is some really interesting stuff going on in verse 25 that I didn't have time uh, to cover. One is that his blood be on us or his blood is on us or his blood is on me. Um, that phrase shows up, uh, throughout the old Testament as a, it's a, it's an idiom or a figure of speech, meaning, um, I take responsibility for, for this person's death or punishment. You know, um, I should have looked up some of the references so I could give them to you, but you could probably just Google it um, and, and find some. So mm -hmm. it is an idiomatic way of saying, we take responsibility for this. Uh, even including the, and on our children um, is a way of saying like our whole, you know, my whole family, my whole family line is going to take responsibility for this action. Uh, or this judgment. Um, so idiomatically, you know, in the, in the voice of the crowd, it just means we take responsibility. Um, now, 
a couple of the, the interesting things that are happening here. One is that uh, Matthew changes his vocabulary a little bit with the word people. So all throughout this narrative, he has used a different word when he's speaking about the crowd. So he says the crowd, the crowd, the crowd, um, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they all, they shouted the crowd. Uh, There's a crowd gathered releasing for the crowd. I'm just skimming through these verses already uh, or that we've already talked about. But when it gets here an ESV, uh, uh, translates it differently to help highlight this. It says, and all the people answered. Now, it may just be synonyms, but the Greek word behind the word people uh, usually or almost exclusively, not exclusively, but close, refers to the people of God, the people of Israel. Mm. Um, and so when all the people respond, you know, Matthew changes his vocabulary. Is that significant or is it just a synonym? I, Greek doesn't have the same reflex in English that we do, where you shouldn't use the same word multiple times in the same sentence. You should use a, you know, you should change up your vocabulary a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so Greek doesn't do that just for stylistic reasons. So usually it means, it means something, uh, sure. but we shouldn't read too much into it. So um, this verse has been used in some really bad ways. It's been used to say, because it says the people answered all the people this means that there is an, an eternal curse on the Jewish people forever. That's reading way too much into this verse, way too much, um, because Matthew's Jewish, all the apostles are Jewish, uh, right? All of, so um, <clears throat> in that sense, it's like, no, this, this is not an eternal curse on all Jews forever. That, that would be way too much. Um, at the same time, though, Matthew does kind of consistently seem to show that Jesus is here for more than just Israel, or that he's Israel's Messiah, and yet they're being very myopic or, or singularly focused on what they think the Messiah is going to do, and don't understand that when the Messiah comes by his death, it will bring in many from all around. Yeah, even from the very beginning of Matthew, we saw this idea of of inclusivity of bringing in people from outside of Israel can be mm-hmm. brought into life in the Messiah. Yeah. So some people, uh, some interpreters look at verse 25 and they're like, yeah, this is, this this is kind of a setup for the judgment that's going to come to Israel in about 40 years after this, when the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is, is sacked and burned. Um, There's not really anything in the text that makes me think uh, we should read this as a judgment on Israel that is fulfilled in the year 70 when the temple is burned. Uh, but I can see how people get there. Um, I still haven't answered the question, though, that was sent in, which is less about his blood be on us in a, in a responsibility sense and more about, well, his blood on us in a redemptive sense, his blood will cover us and cover our children. Um, I would say that the, the, the person's, um, what the person is saying is true, um, but maybe not necessarily what Matthew is trying to do in this verse. Like it is true that the blood of Jesus is uh, available to all to cover, uh, cover sins through faith. Um, that doesn't really seem to be here a sense that um, there's a faith response or anything like that. Sure. Uh, but his, his blood be on us. If we read it more like, yeah, his blood is now available for us and for our children. Um, as a, a redemptive covering for our sins. Yes, that's absolutely true. 
Right. Um, is that what Matthew's trying to say? Not really. I don't think so. Um, but it, it kind of reminds us of that fact. Okay. Uh, even if that's not what Matthew's trying to say, it does remind us of the, oh yeah, his blood is now for us and available to us. And mm-hmm. by his blood, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, his sacrifice, his life, death and resurrection. Yes. You mean, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So not, not like magical blood or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Joey, is there anything else that you wanted to be able to unpack Whew. with the text? That's a lot. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, um, there's there's plenty there's plenty more in here, of course, that we could talk about. But uh, again, we'd be getting into um, like little details that uh, are interesting, but not necessarily uh, edifying. So, okay. Um, so, how do we move from this passage into what we're going to study on Sunday? Mm, well, so um, yeah, on Sunday we're going to move from Jesus being delivered to be crucified to actually watching that delivery happen. So in the verses to come, we're going to see Jesus um, stripped and mocked as King. Um, We're going to see him abused and and mocked. uh, And then we're going to see him as he carries the crossbar of the cross out of the city and all the way up to uh, Golgotha or um, Calvary. And uh, some interesting, interesting stuff there, but what's going on with the wine uh, that they give him to drink, um, mm-hmm. dividing up his garments and keeping watch over him. And ultimately, the we're, we're going to read not all the way to the death, but to Jesus being high and lifted up on a cross uh, underneath the sign that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, um, and just the the ironies. Uh, that are there uh, are profound. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to do something similar in that we're we're simply going to try to experience the story or uh, hear the story experientially and sort of put ourselves there uh, mm-hmm. and watch as Jesus walks this last hour to the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're we're kind of getting him on the cross two weeks before Good Friday. But um, there's a lot that happens. So we, we have a yeah. lot to talk about. So this is fun. Right. I guess I'll see you next week then. Sounds after great. Jesus crucified. Great. And just, I would like to encourage people to keep sending in those questions. These are just really great to be able to walk through. So um, if you have a question on how to submit questions, we've got this number on the screen at all times. Um, During the sermon, the sermon, that's right. Yeah. Yes. And it says, do you have questions? Text this number. That number is our same faith church texting number. The number that you receive texts from, um, you are also able to text. It goes both ways. And so in the same way you would just text just anybody, um, you can text faith church and we receive those. Um, You'll just get like an automated response that says, thanks for sending this in. Um, And uh, we'll be able to see those. Joey sees those in an email and I'm able to see those come in and we can plug them into our cover time episode so don't be shy absolutely. send in your yeah. questions we love them yeah absolutely they're fun i love yeah. to hear what people are thinking and wondering about uh while preaching thanks for listening to this week's episode of cut for time if you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our faith church texting number and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode 
If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.